Welcome to the May 7th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Kings 1 through 3. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 1, and let's begin by reading the first couple of verses. It says, After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahaziah had fallen through the latticed window of his upstairs room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers instructing them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this injury, unquote. So Ahab's son, Ahaziah, is king of Israel. He's ruling in Samaria, and he had an accident, and he fell through a window to the ground level, uh, apparently the ground below. Um, It seems that his injuries were pretty significant, uh, and uh, he may have broken some bones and done some serious internal damage, and so he wanted to know if he would survive the accident. So rather than going to Micaiah or another prophet of the Lord, he sent messengers to the Philistine city of Ekron and inquired of the god of Beelzebub. When we look into the New Testament, it clearly reveals that Beelzebub, or also known as Beelzebul, was considered to be Satan. Just listen to Luke eleven fifteen. But some of them said he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So no wonder the Lord became furious whenever uh, this king, uh, Ahaziah, sent to ask of Beelzebub or Beelzebul how he was going to do. The ruler of his people was consulting a demon rather than their god. Uh, who had done so much for them. So the Lord sent Elijah to intercept those messengers and tell them that Ahaziah's death was certain because he had not consulted the Lord. Listen to verse 4. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. And then Elijah left, unquote. So the messengers went back to Ahaziah and told him what Elijah had said. Apparently, Ahaziah became angry and sent one of his captains and 50 men to get Elijah and bring him back to the king of Israel, to Ahaziah. Listen to verses 9 and 10. So King Ahaziah sent a captain with his 50 men to Elijah. When the captain went up to him, he was sitting on top of the hill. So Elijah was sitting on a hill and uh, he announced, the, the captain announced, Man of God, the king declares, come down. Verse 10, Elijah responded to the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Ahaziah, unfettered, he's not bothered by this because it wasn't him who died. He's still wondering if he's going to die. But Ahaziah sent another captain with 50 men to get Elijah. And their wives would soon be widows too. Then the third captain was sent with his 50 men, but he fell down on his knees and pleaded with Elijah to spare his life. Well, Elijah um, was moved by his humility 
and he received a word from the Lord to go with this third group to meet Ahazia. Listen what the what he told the king in verse 16. Then Elijah said to King Ahazia, This is what the Lord says, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel for you to inquire of his will? You will not get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. Okay, so far, we've only looked at the story, but God's word does give uh, does us very little good when we only read it as literature. We must ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand its meaning so that the Holy Spirit can join us in applying the truths of God's word to our lives. So what's the meaning of 2 Kings chapter 1? It would seem that it warns us of getting to a point in our life when the Lord becomes irrelevant to us. When we have a need, we may go to something or someone else rather than immediately going to the Lord in dependent prayer. So, for example, if we were to take a fall like a hazia, it would be reckless not to seek medical help. That's a no-brainer. But for the Christian, as we're waiting for help to arrive, do we cry out to the Lord in prayer? Do we realize that our lives are ultimately in His care? Do we acknowledge that even those who have been trained in the medical field who are coming to help us can only do what He allows them to do? In other words, as we seek help, are we fully submitting to Jesus' lordship over our lives? In Ahazia's experience, his heart was wicked. That's why he went after other gods. He did not love the Lord or desire to submit to him. In our experience, we may simply grow indifferent to the Lord. Because of sin or maybe just spiritual apathy, our hearts are capable of growing cold toward the Lord. And then when troubles come, we reach out to others and fail to acknowledge him. In those times, he seems irrelevant to us. That attitude reveals much about our hearts that is unhealthy and needs to be fixed. So friend, as we read about Ahazia seeking the counsel of false gods rather than the one true God, just realize that we can be more like him than we realize. Let's determine to recognize our utter dependence upon the Lord every moment of the day. Well, Back to 2 Kings 1, we read that Ahaziah died, as the Lord had said, through Elijah. Since Ahaziah didn't have a son to rule in his place, his brother Joram, also a son of Ahab, becomes king of Israel. Second Kings 2, let's begin with reading the first two verses. The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. In a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord is sending me on to Bethel. But Elisha replied, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Unquote. So as we read the next few verses, it becomes clear that Elijah wants to be alone as the Lord takes him. We're not quite sure why, but a couple of times he tells Elisha that the Lord is leading him somewhere and for Elisha to stay behind. But Elisha refuses to leave him. 
the sons of the prophets even told Elisha a couple of times that the Lord was about to take Elijah, but Elisha responded both times, yes, I know, be quiet. Elisha has spent time with Elijah being trained to take over when Elijah was called home. But now that the time has come, Elisha seems like he's nervous, maybe even scared. It's hitting him that he won't have Elijah to lean on anymore. Honestly, this process is exactly what we observe when we listen to Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We are told to go and make disciples, which means that we are equipping others to carry on the gospel to other areas and to the next generations. It's inevitable that, like Elijah, we aren't going to be here forever, so we've got to train folks so that the message carries on after we leave. And uh, once again, a lot of people, when they think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, they think Jesus is telling us, go and get people saved, and then that's it. But that's because people that think that way have not truly thought about and read in depth, actually read superficially, what Jesus said in Matthew 28. He didn't say, go get people saved. He said, go make disciples, go baptize them, and then teach them all things that I have commanded you. This is a holistic thing. This isn't go get people saved. Jesus said, go equip the next generation. Go equip other people who are going to reach other areas or will reach the next generation. It's not just get people saved. It's not only share the gospel with them, but then share with them how they can grow in their faith, how they can grow, how it will affect their marriage, how it will affect their parenting, how it will affect how they are to uh, perform at work. You know, what's a Christian work ethic look like? What's integrity look like? I mean, all of these things. That's what it means to equip, to train other people. So, little application here before we get back to the text. Who are you equipping? Hopefully, uh, if you are a parent or a grandparent, you're equipping, teaching, and modeling what it means to be a follower of Jesus to your children and your grandchildren. Maybe you're also meeting with someone of the same gender that this needs to be stated uh, that, uh, you know, when we mentor or train or equip or disciple, whatever you want to call it, when you're working with someone else and you are meeting with that individual, if it's just you and them, they need to be of the same gender as you. So maybe you're also meeting with someone of the same gender uh, as you for lunch once a week or once a month to teach them lessons that you've learned about following the Lord in your life. Maybe you're a married couple. You and your spouse are meeting with another married couple who maybe they've just recently been married or maybe their marriage is struggling and uh, they maybe have reached out to you because they see your marriage and, and it seems like something that they want to cultivate. They want a marriage like yours. And so you're meeting with them to teach them how following the Lord and obeying his word has helped you, what lessons you have learned um, to be able to have the kind of marriage that you've got. Whatever you do and whoever you equip, just don't live life for yourself. Invest in others who will carry on after you're gone. Okay, so let's get back to 2 Kings 2. Look at verses 7 and 8. Fifty men from the sons of the prophets came and stood observing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan, Elisha and Elijah. They stood by the Jordan, verse 8. 
Elijah took his mantle, or we, we would call it his cloak, and he rolled it up, struck the water, which parted to the right and the left, and then the two of them crossed over on dry ground, unquote. One of Elijah's last words to Elisha was a question of what he could do for Elijah before he was taken. Elisha asked for, quote, two shares of your spirit, unquote. Uh, this seems to imply that Elisha humbly acknowledged that he would need two shares in order to be the man Elijah was. It could also mean that Elijah, Elisha was like uh, the firstborn son. He was someone that Elijah was training, and the firstborn son in the Jewish uh, worldview would always get a double portion. So Elisha was just asking for whatever Elisha could give to him so that he could be the man, or at least part of the man that Elijah was. I think this was a humble answer on Elisha's part. Then we read of Elijah's departure, and uh, we cannot quite call it death. Although it was, it technically wasn't. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and the first part of verse 12, it says this, As they continued walking, so they're on the east side of the Jordan River, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, unquote. Well, this is certainly not normative. <laughs> this, this isn't what typically happens. In fact, there's no other instance in Scripture of anyone being taken to heaven in this way. But honestly, when we consider the fiery ministry of Elijah, it seems appropriate that he was taken to heaven in such a loud, visually overwhelming way. The only thing to drop to the ground when Elijah was taken was his cloak. So Elijah... Elisha picked it up and headed back toward the Jordan. I suppose that Elisha wondered if the Lord had really conferred prophet power upon him as the Lord had done to Elijah. Listen to verse 14. He took the mantle Elijah had dropped and he struck the water, right? Elijah had done this going over to the east side, so now Elisha is giving it a try going back over to the west. He struck the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah, he asked. And he struck the water himself, and it parted to the right and the left, and Elisha crossed over. It, this, this happened, and this had to have been an affirmation to Elisha that the Lord had now granted him the ability, the prophet power, if you would, of Elijah. Well, the sons of the prophets who had been watching came up to Elisha and affirmed that Elisha, Elijah's spirit was resting on Elisha. But when they requested to go and look for Elijah's, but then they requested to go and say, hey, let's look for his body. You know, they said uh, that maybe it was dropped on the mountain or maybe he was let down on the mountain or in one of the valleys. And uh, if you have been to this area uh, where they were and they would have been very close, probably very close to Jericho. Um, then when you look down in the Jordan Valley, it's very lush and green. But then when you look to the other side of the Jordan, um, then you see the mountain range, a mountain range just climbs really high up above the Jordan River. And so they wondered if Elijah had been left there or in one of the valleys. Well, the sons of the prophet went to look. They didn't find anything. They got back and they told Elijah that they could not find Elijah well, Elisha already knew this. Friend, um, I see a beautiful truth here. 
Elijah took his body to heaven. His body was not dropped. Only the cloak was left behind. His body was not dropped. Elijah took his body to heaven. When we read Acts 1, we also realize that Jesus took his physical body to heaven. Of course, we realize that 1 Corinthians tells us that our, that our mortal bodies must be turned into immortal bodies in order to enjoy the splendors of heaven forever. But don't miss the point that Elijah and Jesus took their bodies to heaven. Why am I making a point about this? Because so many Christians suspect that heaven is just some sort of spiritual place that is completely foreign to our experience on earth. And honestly, many people are not attracted to that because we love, even in a broken world, we look at the beauty and we smell the aromas of a delicious meal and we hug those that we love and we love being here. And if we think of heaven as a spiritual place and not a physical place, it becomes less attractive to us. But heaven is a place where there is no sin and no curse that came as a result of sin. And it's also where we are made thoroughly righteous and are able to enjoy our God in our, to our heart's content. But it's also a physical place. And when we read the last two chapters of Revelation, we realize that God is one day going to create a brand new earth that is untouched by sin and the consequences of sin. And we who are thoroughly righteous and incapable of sin will enjoy our God on that new physical earth forever. Wherever heaven is right now, it is not the new earth, but wherever heaven is right now, it is a physical place where Jesus in his physical body and Elijah in his physical body that was translated, that was turned into a body that did not have the curse of sin on it, they are completely at home in heaven because heaven even right now is a physical place. If you want to dive a bit deeper into what the Bible says about heaven, then consider getting the book. It's simply titled Heaven and is written by Randy Alcorn. It is one of my all-time favorite books. Well, back in 2 Kings 2, we read that Elisha cured the water in Jericho, but then we read a troubling passage. Listen to verses 23 and 24. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking up the path, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, Go up, Baldy! Go up, Baldy! He turned around, looked at them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. Unquote. What in the world is going on in this text? <laughs> well, first of all, these may not have been young boys. The Hebrew words that are used here lead us to believe that these could have been young men. And, and why is that a difference? Well, when we look at um, children, we hold them less morally accountable because they don't fully understand the consequences like an older person would. Um, they don't understand many of the things that we understand as far as etiquette and rudeness and things like that. And so it, we find it a little bit morally troubling if these are children rather than young men. I just want you to know the Hebrew word does lead us to believe that it could have been young men and not children, as so many of our translations translate it. Further, these, and I'm going to go on and say children slash young men because we don't know for sure, but these children, young men, were speaking to Elisha with contempt. They were 
telling him to go up. You know, right? They said, go up, Baldy. They said, go up. And maybe that's because they were telling him to leave like Elijah, who went up in the chariot of fire. They were telling him, you get out of here too, just like Elijah. And they were also mocking him by calling him Baldy. Well, Elisha was a, a young man, uh, and so he probably still had his hair. So they may have simply used the, the, the term, derogatory term, Baldy, to refer to him as a repugnant a uh, leper who a leper would have lost their hair and so they were maybe using that derogatory term to him too so these children or young men who have gone way overboard in showing contempt for God's prophet had crossed the line and i tend to believe that these Young men were either prophets of Baal or something of the sort or these if they were children they were children of parents who had held God's prophets in contempt or, you know, something like that. So the chapter ends by telling us that 42 of them were mauled by bears. Well, verse 25 ends the chapter. It says, from there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel. Well, what's significant about Mount Carmel? Well, that's where Elijah experienced uh, the fire coming down out of heaven onto the altar. And that's where uh, the Israelites proclaimed, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God in response to Elijah standing against the thousands that were there on the mountain. So Elisha went to that place. He went to Mount Carmel and then he returned to Samaria. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 3. Listen to verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat, and he reigned 12 years. So uh, we're introduced to Joram once again, uh, son of Ahab. So um, he's reigning. Then we're told that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. This is not a surprise. Once again, remember, as you're reading the Old Testament, if uh, especially the book of Kings and Chronicles, as we read about those who are in the northern tribe of Israel that was started where the first king was Jeroboam, every single king is evil. Not all of them are equally evil, but all of them are wicked. They don't love the Lord. They don't follow after the Lord. They don't lead people to follow the Lord. None of those in the northern tribe of Israel do that. The southern tribe uh, that uh, was Solomon's line, uh, Rehoboam was the next one, and then all of the kings that follow after, it's kind of hit and miss. You know, some of them are good, some of them are bad. Some, th uh, some of them are incredibly good, and they lead in a time of revival in the southern kingdom. Uh, but then others are really bad, but not a single king in the northern kingdom ever even remotely gets close to leading people in a time of revival. So when we get to uh, 2 Kings 3 and we are introduced once again to Joram, a son of Ahab, king over Israel, we know that he's a bad guy. But essentially, in so many words, it says that he just wasn't as bad as many of the others. But that's not saying much. Well, uh, it's not just that he was looked down on by the Lord. Joram also did not have the respect of others. And we read about a king who did not respect him. In fact, believed King Joram of Israel to be a pushover. Listen to verses 4 and 5, 2 Kings 3, 4 and 5. King Mesha of Moab 
was a sheep breeder. Okay, let me stop there for a second. Moab, Moab, if you were to envision the land of Israel, and if you can envision the uh, the Dead Sea there at the bottom, um, Moab would be on the east of the Dead Sea, kind of to the, toward the northern part of it, but it would be on the uh, east side of the Dead Sea. Um, and in fact, you know, that's where Ruth came from. But, uh, but this is where this king is. King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Uh, he thought, hey, his son, uh, you know, Ahab, he was kind of powerful, but I don't uh, think that I have to submit to uh, the leadership of his sons anymore. And so he rebelled. Well, King Joram of, of, of Israel suspected that he wasn't powerful enough to defeat the king of Moab, so he created an alliance. Since uh, Joram knew that his father Ahab had previously created an alliance with King Jehoshaphat of Judah. He reached out to him. King Jehoshaphat was still leading in Judah. Listen to verse 7. Then he, went, uh, then he sent a message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and he said this, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Joab said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. Unquote. Jehoshaphat seems to be um, saying the same thing that he said to Ahab. And from what we can see of Jehoshaphat, he just seems like kind of an easygoing kind of guy who strived to obey the Lord, but he also just wanted to help others, even if they were bad people. Well, in root... Uh, they decided to, as the two of them and the king of Edom got together, uh, they decided to uh, get to the king of Moab around the southern tip of the Dead Sea. That's the, the route they decided. They didn't want to cross over the Jordan. They wanted to cross around under uh, you know, the south side of the Dead Sea. And even though they were next to a massive body of water, the Dead Sea. They realized on the journey that they may die of thirst. They ran out of water. The Dead Sea is saturated with salt, so much more than normal seawater uh, that you dare not let any of it come inside of your mouth or you're going to be hitting the restroom for the next day or two. It's going to do a number on your stomach. Uh, which will further dehydrate you. And there was no water. It is literally a wilderness. There are no trees. There are no. There's no grass. There's nothing around the Dead Sea. And so they were wondering: Are did did are have we come this far? And are we around here, the three of us, in order for the Lord to kill us of dehydration and our armies? Well, wondering whether they would die of thirst, Joram, the king of Israel, began to panic. But Jehoshaphat king of Judah, he was close to the Lord. And so his immediate reaction was to seek the Lord in this matter, right? He did that before with Ahab. He wanted to seek the Lord. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Then the king of Israel said, Oh no, the Lord has summoned these three kings only to hand them over to Moab. So he doesn't trust the Lord. He doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. The only reason the Lord comes out of his mouth is he's thinking the Lord has done this to get rid of him. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Let's inquire of the Lord through him. 
One of the servants of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, uh, who used to pour water on Elijah's hands, is here. Jehoshaphat affirmed, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went to him. When Elisha showed up, honestly, it feels like deja vu. It reminds us of the tension in the air when King Ahab met Elijah. In fact, Elisha told Joram that he wouldn't even give the king of Israel the time of day if it weren't for his respect for King Jehoshaphat. Elisha did seek the Lord and then gave the following message to the kings. Listen to verses 16 through 18. Then he said, This is what the Lord says. Dig ditch after ditch in this wadi. Just dig a bunch of ditches. For the Lord says, you will not see wind or rain, but the wadi will fill with water, and you will drink, you and your cattle and your animals. This is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. So this was an act of faith. This uh, digging these ditches made no sense because there are no streams. There is hardly ever any rain, and it's nothing but just dead dirt and rocks in that area. So what I thought of as as I was reading that is, is this. Wouldn't it be nice if the Lord spoke to us as clearly as he spoke to Elisha? We may find ourselves wishing that we were back in that day to, to be able to listen, you know, to the Lord or at least go to prophets who clearly heard from the Lord. Yet, the Lord does speak to us in ways that are just as clear and certain today. Ultimately, ultimately, he speaks to us in his written word, and we call it the Bible. Uh, there is a multitude of other ways that the Lord can speak to us, but every single one of them needs to be measured against the written word. Why? Because we always need to measure what we think the Lord is saying against what we know he has already said in his word. So in order to hear from the Lord, we absolutely must spend much time in our Bibles, getting our Bibles into our minds and hearts so that the Holy Spirit can run to the arsenal of our mind, throw the doors open, and be able to reach in and grab that relevant word of the Lord to speak to our hearts so that we know what God is leading us to do. Our filling of the Spirit is in direct proportion to our ability to get God's word into our mind and heart. Well, back in 2 Kings 3, we read that the Moabite army woke up the following morning and looked toward the Israelite army. The trenches that the Israelites had dug had been filled with water overnight. This was a miracle. So the sun's reflection on that water made it look like blood to the Moabites. They assumed that the armies of Israel, Judah, and Edom had fought against each other, leaving blood all over the ground, so they went to attack them. Well, in verse 24, however, when the Moabites came to Israel's camp, the Israelites attacked them and they fled from them. So Israel went into the land attacking the Moabites. So they defeated the army. Now they're going into the heart of Moab, just conquering cities. And when the king of Moab saw that all hope was lost, listen to this, he offered up a sacrifice to his gods, but this wasn't any animal sacrifice. Listen to verse 27. 
So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land, unquote. Let me share with you a couple of things I see in this last verse. First, the king of Moab sacrificed his own son. This is absolutely sick and wicked, yet this is exactly what the people of Canaan did that made God so furious that he sent the people of Israel under Joshua's leadership in to wipe them out. Further, we're going to see that the people of Israel would eventually embrace this practice and sacrifice their own children to the god of Moloch. In fact, they would eventually do this right outside of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom. It would become known as Gehenna, a place of death, a place of utter hopelessness and unfettered wickedness. And Jesus, in the Gospels, would later use the word Gehenna to describe hell. The second thing uh, that uh, we see in 2 Kings 3.27 is that, quote, great wrath was on the Israelites, unquote. So what's that about? Is God angry at them? Some commentaries seem to think so. I don't think so. I think that they had just defeated Moab, the, the army, uh, whose king had just sacrificed his own son. And so what's going on? It seems that the great wrath was probably coming from the Moabites. The child that would eventually become their king, the Moabite king, had been sacrificed because of the Israelite invasion. And it may be that the Moabites hated the Israelites all the more for being the catalyst that led to the death of their future king. And we're told at the end of 2 Kings 3.27 that the Israelites withdrew from him and returned to their land, probably because of the fierceness of the Moabite army, fueled by their anger that their future king has been killed some of the Moabite cities uh, were spared. I'll end with a quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary in regard to this battle. Listen to this. Quote, A remarkable archaeological discovery called the Moabite Stone contains Mesha's own record of this battle and other battles with Israel. On this stone, the Moabite king claimed to have been delivered from the Israelites by his god Chemish, on this day, though it is true that he was not captured at Kir Harasheth and the Israelites withdrew, Israel and her armies were the real victors in this campaign, unquote. So it's interesting that the Moabite stone uh, was found by archaeologists and it refers to this battle. And of course, it gives it from the vantage point of the Moabites that uh, Israel went away from them. They withdrew because of the sacrifice that the king had made of his son. Um, but we, looking at it from the vantage point of the Israelites and through the eyes of God, realize that this was just utter abhorrent wickedness of sacrificing one's own son. And we realize um, that... Uh, yeah, as we read uh, from God's word, we see it from a different perspective. I just want to end also by saying this one last thing, that it's not just the Moabite stone that, uh, that looks at things from a different vantage point. 
It's also many of the things that are coming at us in society. Evolution looks at the world and sees it very differently than the Bible presents it in the book of Genesis and Genesis 1 and 2 with the story of creation. There are so many things that are said from a different vantage point than what the Bible says. Friend, I'm telling you that, uh, that we need to get into the Bible and we need to believe it. We need to know it, we need to believe it, we need to apply it in our own lives Um, because it doesn't so much matter what others say, we care what the Lord God says. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you once again for the incredible stories that are written on the pages of Scripture. We get to observe the words and the actions of men and women as you write about it through the pen of about 40 men as the word of God was was put on paper. Thank you, Lord, that we get to observe the kind of things that make you smile and the kind of things that make you angry. But help us, Lord, not merely to read the stories, but to look for the adjustments that we need to make in our own life in response to our exposure to your word. And we can only do this in the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that he would assist us on our road to greater degrees of holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.